All right, Launch Angle Podcast, episode five. We're back here with Drew. We're doing the first in-person podcast today. We're doing it live from my tiny kitchen table, doing two mics. Um, two coffees as well. Two coffees, two really fresh, hot coffees. Freshly brewed, Lock Loam. Shout out. That's true. Shout Lock Loam here in Philly. Is Lock Loam based out of Philly? Weren't they so. founded in Philly? Yeah. Are yeah. they even in other cities? Uh, I'm sure they're in New York, but it might, they might just be East Coast. But you can go to a lot of great Lock Loam roasteries, right? I mean, the one on Rittenhouse Square is super nice. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know if that's like the original one. But yeah. It's not like the, the hipster coffee in Philadelphia that's just like five bucks and is sour. It is or it isn't. It's not like yeah, that. It's not. It's like good, full body it's, roast. It's more, for anyone who knows the difference, more European. Yeah. Whatever it is, I like it. I mean, so many places in Philly, I don't know. I feel like it's just very sour. It's like five dollars. We were talking about this the other day. I, I can they flip they flip lot. around the square like little iPad for yeah. the tip. Well that's and, every place now. And they give you attitude the whole time. They're almost like mad that you're in the coffee shop. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird vibes. Yeah. I think a lot of places have that now. Um, but the difference for anyone interested, the reason it tastes sour, a lot of the smaller ones that are not your regular coffee shop use coffees from South America. Which are lighter, and oh, if you don't brew, if you don't brew them right, do taste pretty sour. Yeah, what's versus, up with that? Like you're a coffee shop, and you're. I well, like you get a black coffee, it just like tastes yeah, sour well, and terrible. Real quick, the difference with La Colombe, I I believe La Colombe is French, and in Europe they have they typically roast coffees darker, and they just like a darker roast of coffee. But a darker roast of coffee is also more forgiving. Like you don't have to brew it perfectly and it'll oh. still come out pretty good because the kind of like you're burning the beans more. So it's, you're getting more of a, you're burning out a lot of those flavors that in lighter roast coffees, if you brew them right, you can get out and they're, you know, sweet and they taste good. Mm. But if you do it wrong, that's why it's sour. Gotcha. And yeah. it's actually less caffeine in dark roast, right? Yeah, but it not, it not any significant amount. Okay, People so. like to say that, but it's, it's really not a significant amount. Gotcha. I didn't know that you're a coffee connoisseur over here. You do know that I'm a coffee. I mean, I know you can make a great cup of coffee, but no, I didn't I know. know you had all the coffee. I packs. know a lot, of, a lot of the coffee facts. Yeah. I think Lachlan is French because it's. I think it is. It has like that dove on the bottle, and I think that it means like dove or something. Oh really? I don't know. I didn't. Know I, that. I think. I think. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know. I know blue bottle. You ever been to a blue bottle? Yeah. They're a. I almost want to say. A, Billion dollar company. Really? They're one of the biggest coffee companies, and I had no idea. Weren't they saying they're owned by Nestle? They are. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like a lot of stuff is just sneakily owned by Nestle. Even Fairlife, like the chocolate milk I saw the other day, it's owned yeah. by Coca Cola. Yeah. Interesting. A lot of big food companies. Big, own. big Milk is making a comeback. Big Milk is making a comeback. Yeah, sneakily. If, if you've been paying attention to the oat milk debates oh, that yeah. have been going on. Yeah, what's your stance on that? I don't know. I've I've read one paper about why. I've read one one paper about why seed oils may be harmful, mm-hmm. and the gist of it is is that you're taking these seed oils from things like soybean, sunflower, and uh, grape seeds. I don't even know if there's a such thing called grape seed. I think it might just be the name of the oil. But you're taking these these um, these industrial crops and. To get oil out of them, you need to, one, use massive quantities of them that you would never... So to get, I think, the same amount of sunflower oil that's in a bag of 
tortilla chips, like maybe like a family size bag, which somebody could easily just eat themselves. I mean, I've probably yeah. done it. Um, you'd need to eat something like 90 years of corn in one sitting. Like just, it's not physiologically yeah. possible in nature to get that much oil. And then the other part of it is they have to go through a lot of processing to get the oils out. So it's like, I think they're bringing the crops up to like really high temperatures and back down, back up. And what happens is the oils get oxidized and they're already high in omega-6, right. which, you know, is pro-inflammatory. So then you're getting all these highly oxidized pro-inflammatory oils in all the foods that we eat. And the reason it's in all the foods we eat is because it's cheap. You can produce it because we mass produce soybeans and corn. So, so with all the leftover, we just use it to make oil for, you know, emulsifiers or for adding to anything where it's more expensive to use butter or some other high quality fat like avocado oil. But the Oatly debate is that Oatly has like the same glycemic load as, as a can of Coke and it also is loaded with vegetable oil. Like the reason people like Oatly is because one, one, it tastes good, has a lot of sugar in it, but two, unlike almond milk, which is pretty watery, it has the same, it has a similar consistency to cow's milk. And the way they're able to get that consistency is by using a lot of, it's called rapeseed oil. Oh yeah. I don't, it comes from, can, uh, it's, it's, it's canola, canola oil. oil. It's another yeah. name for canola oil. Yeah. And so that's how they get the consistency. But at the end of the day, what are you, you're just, you're drinking, uh, oats that have been processed and pounded down with water plus sugar plus seed oils. Right. And. So pe people are asking now when they go into coffee. This has become the default in coffee shops. Oatly actually makes a barista blend that you can buy at the store, but most coffee oh. shops have it. So they've, they're in coffee shops now. Right. And I think some people have noticed, uh, n most notably Chamath recently on the last all-in podcast that yeah. at, at Blue Bottle, that some of these coffee shops, are just, if you ask for a latte, they're just using oat milk by default, and you have to actually ask for regular milk now. So... Yeah, I feel like the oat milk thing happened really fast, right? Like, it seems like over It's the last actually been around for a while. I didn't know this. But the popularity. Yeah, the popularity. Like, it seemed yeah. like the, the growth was very slow, and then in the last, like, year or two, it's just become an explosion of people getting oat milk. Because I think people used to get, like, almond milk, maybe, or soy milk, and then now it's all just oat milk. But, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think it comes down to like I've said before with some of these health food things is branding. I think oat milk has incredible marketing and branding. Yeah, that's true. And I think in a, in a good way and then also in a non-mindful way, people want to feel like they're doing the right thing and the good thing. And I think milk and dairy has been, you know, demonized yeah. in industrial farming and as it should be, rightly so, to, for a lot of reasons. But there's, again, nuance to it. Like I think I told you when I'm home, um, I'm from Long Island and, and out far out east on Long Island, there's a lot of farms and there's a farm that has a permit by New York state to sell raw cow's milk. Mm -hmm. So all the cows are grass fed, they just roam free, they you know do what they want, they live a cow's life and then they milk them and then they sell this milk and it's more expensive, but it's, it's good. And so if I drink milk, I mean, I'm not getting it, just whatever I grab at the store, I'm, I'm doing it thoughtfully. So I think there's something to be said for that. But. Yeah. I mean, even if you get it at the store, let's say, and it's humanely treated and it's grass-fed, like, 
what even is the issue there? Like, I feel like we had this huge pushback against cow's milk in the last decade where I feel like people just say like, oh, milk is bad, but they can't back it up with any specific logic behind it a lot of times. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't know if I could tell you even the argument for why milk is bad. I mean, people make the evolutionary argument that, you know, we didn't grow, we didn't evolve drinking cow's milk. It was, it's pretty recent. If you think right. of it, it wasn't until people became, we had an agricultural Yeah, we weren't society. mashing oat. Yeah, we like weren't doing oats that into either. milk yeah. also, and all the other millions of foods that line the shelves in the grocery yeah. store. Like I think, yeah, I think people are, are more anti-milk for humane reasons. Which, okay, that's fine. Which makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, but I think, I think there is something to be said for mindfully going about it. And, and I agree. Going to a farm that treats them right. I think also people, when it comes to food, they really do play hide the ball. Like, people do this with vegetarianism and veganism. They'll talk about the merit of the diet based nutritionally, and then once they're kind of backed in a corner, and what they're saying isn't completely adding up, then they'll start to use the humane argument. And it's like they go back and forth in terms of convenience, where it's like, yeah, it's completely fine if you're a vegetarian or vegan for humane reasons, but you know, as long as you're not making absurd claims about either of those diets, you know, mm -hmm. like, I'm fine. You know, yeah. like a lot of people would say, uh, like veganism, like, oh, you don't need, uh, I remember in the Game Changers documentary that was covering it, they're making a, a ton of crazy claims and kind of manipulating statistics, but they're saying like, you don't need B12, um, which is completely an essential you know, vitamin mm -hmm. that you're going to lack if you're a vegan. And then it's like you start arguing about that and then it turns into a humanitarian thing. It's like, which one is it? Right? Yeah. Yeah, again, these things, I mean, these arguments give me such a headache, but I don't know, I think there's, there's a, it's, uh, if you have the means and the resources to eat an ethical omnivorous diet. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong, wrong no, with that yeah. at all. And I think that, that I think a lot of people who are actually um, vegan for maybe not for health reasons, but for ethical reasons yeah. probably agree with you. Right. And I think I mean even with the oatly stuff, like yeah, it has sugar, it has, you know, high omega six content, allegedly based upon what you're saying. I haven't looked into it. Um but if you're having a splash of it here or there, like, you know, it's probably not the, the worst thing no. for health. Like it's for people that aren't completely familiar with nutrition, like omega six is essential in the diet. Like you need to have omega six. So like anything else, well, let's back up actually on that point on omegas. Okay. Like you can explain further omega three versus omega six and why they're, why they're essential. I'm not even. Sure. Sure. I mean, well, they're, they're, they're essential because you, 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 your body can't, uh, you, you can't create them. Yeah, your body can't yeah. create omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And the reason you need omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids is because your body uses both as a preco precursor to, to make molecules. Yeah. Called, uh, eicosanoids, which actually function like hormones. They're not actually hormones, but they function like hormones. 
And omega-3 are precursors to making these anti-inflammatory eicosanoids. I'm sure there's other functions, but the big thing people focus on is inflammation. And then omega-6 is used to make pro-inflammatory eicosanoids. So you need a proper ratio of both because some inflammation is good. Acute inflammation, right. you know, every time you get a cut or a bruise, like that's acute inflammation. Your body needs that to heal. But when your balance is out of whack, which is usually the standard American Western uh, diet, is very high in omega-6 and very low in omega-3s, what you end up with is background inflammation. It, it's easier for your body to be in an inflammatory state all the time because you actually, one, you have an excess of the thing that is leading to those, sorry, if anyone can hear the uh, ambulance in the background. Um, leading to those molecules that uh, promote inflammation, and then you also don't have the omega-3s to tamp down that inflammation, so. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like throughout my time in nutrition, I've just kind of known like, oh yeah, omega-3, anti-inflammatory, you know, essential, and then also the omega-6 is essential, but yeah, the, the background's pretty interesting as well. Um, I know at least, an interesting thing in the hospital is, I think the U.S. is one of the few countries that's kind of lagging behind in terms of, in the hospital you have like a formulary with, uh, for people that are on a tube feed, right? They're not able to eat by mouth or can only partially get their calories by mouth. And um, the U.S. is one of the countries that's lagging behind in terms of using very high omega-6 uh, formularies as well. Um, and despite the research saying that um, high omega-3 content improves healing time and reduces inflammation and things like that, it's just, I think we kind of just get stuck in the U.S. a lot of times with with these decisions and it's like hard to, to course correct. Yeah, wait, so you're saying the formulas have high omega-6 content? High omega-6 content. Yeah. I part, of the, part of the thing is I, I'm pretty sure it's just cheaper compared yeah, to paying for right. threes, but it's like, all right, we're paying for a surgery that costs X amount of dollars, right. and then it's like, the ten, tube ten feed is like, grand. yeah, and the tube feed's like, how? I would be curious where, what the source of the omega-6 is. It'd be interesting if you want I think it's soy. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I would be interested in who is the manufacturer of those formulas, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably a big food company. Yeah, it's not, like not Abbott. like a conspiracy theorist, but it yeah, probably yeah. is. No, yeah, it's like Abbott and Nestle. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, that definitely makes an impact. But yeah, just in terms of like the the point about omega-6, omega-3, uh, just to come back to it, it's like, for both these things, it's not that either one is good and either one is bad. It's just like anything else. Like, it's a Goldilocks, right? You mm -hmm. want to have a certain proportion of one and a certain proportion of the other and just like you know sugar in the diet or protein or fat saturated fat um, you know there's no it's not that they're bad or good it's just that like there's amounts that are in excess right like saturated fat isn't bad but you just want to make sure that it's not exaggerated in the diet yeah, there's a lot to be said about the source of these things because they get boiled down to just protein, fat, yeah, carbohydrates. Right. I had a, I answered a question on Cora again recently, which was about eating healthy and just some simple ways to eat healthy. And I listed out uh, three things, which was four things actually. First was 
to just try to eat whole foods with the simple heuristic of, did this food always look like this? You know, you got a head of broccoli or asparagus or, a, you know, cut of meat or something. It, it hasn't been changed much from its original form. It's just a simple way to say, all right, this is probably, this is an unprocessed food. Yeah. Second, I said to avoid bad processed foods, and I said I qualified it with bad because not all processed foods are bad. No. That's another common misconception people have. There's plenty of food brands out there that make, because when you think, what is actually the definition of processed food? People think chips and candy. All processed food is, it's just, it's food that has been modified from its original form to yeah. be in a different form. Usually that means, you know, cutting, cutting corners and, yeah, pumping it with sugar and stripping salt. it of fiber and so Usually it means something bad. But it doesn't have to. Like, I eat these, uh, Total Plug, they're not a sponsor, but I eat these bars called IQ Bars, and they're a protein bar. I have a bad habit of, not a bad habit, I guess, but I just have a compulsion to just, I like eating protein bars. I look at them as, like, a free lunch, which I shouldn't. But some of them are, they're so just like candy bars now. Yeah. And I just feel good about it, because, oh, high in protein, there's no sugar in it. But they're loaded with they're loaded with the bad seed oils that we're talking about here. They're they're made with all artificial ingredients. They have to be. That's how they make these things. Taste like birthday cake, you know, fucking bonanza, and right. also be good for you. Um, but these IQ bars are really good. They're made with um, I think they use uh, coconut oil. They use omega threes. They have lion's mane. It's very like whole whole food based ingredients that they've just managed to put together in this bar form. And I think they use monk's fruit as well instead of mm. stevia or anything like that. They're really, really good too. Sometimes with those more all natural bars, they can be, they don't taste great. These taste really, really yeah. good. So I was just saying like there's good processed foods out there. You just, usually they're more expensive. You're not going to find them in your average grocery store. But if you do the research, you know, you can find them. If yeah. convenience means something to you. Right. It's like anything else. Like you're making a relatively absolute point about you know eating more whole foods where I think that will steer you more times than not in a in a good direction right it's not that all processed food is is bad it's just that more times than not you're probably going to be selecting a, a good choice if you're leaning towards something that's not very processed yeah definitely yeah but I mean I think where a lot of people get in trouble is this the whole bad good ideology with nutrition. Um, I mean, there's not necessarily bad foods because I feel like when you think about a food as being bad, it leads to guilt, and then that's kind of a feedback loop. That's almost like reverse psychology. Like you don't end up eating less of bad foods because you're avoiding them. It's almost like the brain wants the thing it can't have. Like the grass is always greener in a way. So I think when you use that kind of mindset of bad foods, you actually try to like seek them out more for whatever reason. And I don't know the psychology behind it, but um, yeah, even they show that children who have parents that restrict certain foods end up eating more of those foods, you know? Yeah. It's like the, it, the, the thing that I think of is we all had that friend who had really, really um, strict parents when they were in high school and middle school and then they go to college and then just go crazy yeah right it's like the same thing i don't know the psychology behind that but um yeah restrictiveness is just kind of kind of weird in that way yeah i was talking to one of my friends who he got a kid in the last year and he's been reading a lot about parenting and he was talking about something with nutrition that he learned 
which he doesn't have to doesn't have to worry about for a little while because his kid is only eight months old, I think. But when it was, it was about family dinner time and how we have the cultural norm of hiding dessert behind or, or using dessert as a reward for eating healthy food, and healthy right. food becomes this obstacle or, yeah. or thing to, to beat almost to yeah. get what if you want. I if I consume this terrible thing, yeah. I get to do this. Yeah. So what what he was saying that he read, I forgot who whose idea this is, but the idea is to serve dinner and serve dessert at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. show that it's it's just a choice of which food you're gonna eat. Yeah, it's on the same plane. Like yeah. It's all food. Yeah, right? you're not putting one food on a pedestal. Exactly. Because when you put a food on a pedestal or, you know, knock a food down for being worse, it's like you're just creating this inherent hierarchy and it's like I need to you know, eat this food to get to this one. And, you know, I just don't think that has historically worked for people. Um, and then also there's like the, the thought of like overt and covert control. So like overt control is like, if I have a, I have, I bring cookies into the house, but then I say like, no, James, you can only have a cookie every, like once a week, let's mm -hmm. say versus covert control is like, I just don't bring them in the house. And they have like very different implications in terms of eating patterns, hmm. right? So um, people generally will end up adhering to a better diet overall willingly if they use covert control compared to overt control. So not bringing the food? Into if you the just house? don't bring the food into the house, but it's like you can feed on whatever is available at any time, right. that's better than like overt control. Like, we bring in Coke and whatever, Sprite and all these other snacks that are, you know, sweet packaged, ultra processed, whatever. Um, but you can only have like it at certain times of the day, right? Yeah. Same thing, placing things on pedestals versus like this is all food that fits in to a diet. Yeah. I think there's two things there. One is I think that that makes sense when you understand that willpower is pretty feeble. Yeah. None of us really have great willpower right. and you should just take more time to design your environment to be conducive to the behavior that you want rather than all day have to exert the power over yourself to go in a certain direction because you will fail. Studies have shown that we do have a finite amount of willpower. It, it, does, it, it does sap mental energy and your ability to do other things and focus on other things when you have to cognitively force yourself to avoid certain things or do certain things. And then the other thing is, I like the idea, I like the covert method because it's almost an allegory for just the rest of life in a way. Mm -hmm. If you say, I'm thinking about it in the context of, of like raising a child, say, if you just make it a point to say, this is what we have in our house, these are the choices we make, what to eat, but when you're outside of this environment, you have the choice to feed, you, you're setting an example of saying like, this is what we choose to eat, this is why we choose to eat it. You're gonna go out into the world. Mm -hmm. You can make your own choices of what to eat. No one's gonna kill you for eating a cupcake at that party yeah, or right. doing this or that. So I think it instills this idea of locus of control. Exactly, you for, always for, have a choice, really. Yeah. Um, yeah it's Versus just if it, it feels like, feels like if you just stock the house with both bad and good food, and said, you have to, you have to adhere to doing it this way. 
it feels like something is more forced upon you than yeah. you having the the agency. Yeah, I think the agency is is a, a huge part there for sure. Um, yeah, because if you have the covert control, it's like whenever you're in whatever environment, you do have have choice, which I think is a, a big thing because choice is responsibility too, mm-hmm. right? It's like also at the end of the day, like your parent could have no education in nutrition whatsoever and they're telling you when you can and can't have certain things. Yeah. Right? Like, how do they know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's not a a perfect formula either. No. No. And most people don't have an education in nutrition. It's It's just a common thing. And it's like, okay, just when the parent is like tired at the end of the day and they're, they don't want to have the argument about whether you can have a, a glass of Sprite Right. You know, they're going to let you. It's not based upon anything that's, like, scientific necessarily. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. I mean, is there, do you learn anything about um, making nutrition education more accessible and portable for people? Maybe with that, in the content, context of the athletes? Mm. This is a thing where it's, to me, it's the... The real problem, the at the heart of the problem with any nutrition issue is the education yeah. piece. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest things that I try to do is, um, I mean, obviously it's putting it in a language that they can understand, just simplifying it. Um, and the other thing is just giving them a very bite-sized thing the first time that we. Um, we talk. So, you know, if you're an athlete and you're trying to gain weight, instead of throwing like 30 things at you at once, I might just say on a Monday, like, Hey James, I want you to just try having a snack between lunch and dinner between Monday and Friday this week. Right. And try to hit that five out of five times. And that's all we're going to talk about for that session. We're not going to talk about, maybe we might say like, I want you to have some protein, and a carb within it. And here are some examples. You can choose whatever you want in this. But I'm not going to say, all right, for breakfast, you need to eat more. You need to add this. And then for the snack here, you have to do this and that and lunch. You know, I'm just going to give you something very small because a lot of these guys, they've never ever, they've never focused on nutrition before. Mm -hmm. So they need to build that self-efficacy too, right? Like if I talk to you one time on a Monday and I give you like, 30,000 things to focus on then we talk again later that week on on Friday like all right I didn't accomplish any of those things because you gave me a million different ones to focus on Mm -hmm. none of them seem more important than the other because you gave me so many things and also now I just feel bad about myself because I didn't adhere to anything right so I just try to make it as simple as possible and just try to avoid that fall off between um the first time that we talk about nutrition and then the potential second time because mm-hmm. that's where the biggest fall off is. Once you get somebody to like the second conversation, I feel like they're more bought in the fall off kind of uh, diminishes yeah. between subsequent sessions. Huh. Yeah. So it's really, it's really just making it very manageable to start. Um, I think it's the same thing with exercise too. Like if you're getting into an exercise routine, it's like, don't start seven days a week, you know, mm. start two days a week when you're super high motivation and 
you know, if by the end of the the first month of exercising you're like burnt out, like you overdid it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we already hit on that like a lot in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now we can we can switch gears now. That was good good nutrition talk. Yeah. yeah. No, that was. Um. What else is going on? I mean, we're both on Twitter, mm -hmm. and that's you know, the Elon Musk acquisition this yeah. week, which. I don't know if you did. Did you see the the two, the two guys who pretended to be yeah, data analysts? Like, yeah, I like actors. I saw it yesterday, and actually did just think they were two guys who got fired. And, yeah, and then it wasn't until this morning that I read into the story more. Yeah, where were they even from? I don't know. I think they just they just showed up with they just boxes. Wanted to <laughs> but somebody made they just an wanted to clown around. Somebody made an interesting point. Was that like, yeah, you got these reporters there who. I mean, didn't even bother to look in the boxes to see if these guys had anything. Yeah. They didn't have anything in the, bo the boxes. I think one guy had Michelle Obama's autobiography, and that was yeah. it, and a pair of AirPods. <laughs> like, nobody even, and, like, these guys did interviews that got in publications. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I can completely comment on the state of journalism, but it just no, doesn't... I don't think either of us are qualified. Yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that it's as rigorous as it might have been in the past, yeah. you know what I mean? Because, I mean, they, they have shown that when you walk it back after you misreport, it's like a fraction of the hits compared to the, the initial oh, yeah. piece, right? Yeah, like, it, it almost doesn't matter if people don't really pay attention. It yeah, like, it's walking it back isn't, isn't that big of a it's, deal. It's also, too, I mean, I think publications do make, they do make those corrections, yeah. But it's not it's not the next day's front page to say, hey, we just made this correction. Right, exactly. It's buried somewhere. Exactly. To say, yeah, we did that. But I don't know, people are saying Twitter's gonna change now and yeah. maybe it'll be better to use. I I don't know. I'm not like super I go on Twitter, I look, I don't tweet too often, but if you had to bet, do you think it gets better or worse? I bet I think it gets better. In what way it gets better, I have I have no idea. Yeah. I did hear this morning I listen to, her name was it Robert Wright, has a good podcast called Non-Zero Podcast. He was saying that, um, and he's a historian, author, um, I think Musk, for one of the first things he did, he brought in like engineers from Tesla to go look at the Twitter code to find, you know, algorithms that were maybe like censoring people, stuff like this. So, I don't know. I, I really liked what they talked about on All In a couple weeks ago when they were talking about somebody proposed a solution, I don't know if it was Freebird or they kind of all came to it together maybe, where they said what you'd ideally have, actually I think Freebird might have been opposed to this, so somebody else, but what you'd ideally have is essentially a marketplace for algorithms where you yeah. can plug in your own and choose what you want your experience on these apps right. to be. If you say, you know, if you want massive political division and echo chambers, then that can be your choice and you can plug that algorithm in and just yeah. you let market forces determine what people's experiences are on these apps with, you know, the hope that it ends up being a, more on balance across yeah. the board. And I think that it's open source too. Yeah. Where yeah. you can go and investigate it. Or it could be like, you know, you have a eight-year-old daughter and you want like the PG version of Twitter. Right. You just select that. Or you want, yeah, a more educational experience. Yeah. Which I think could potentially work. It's just, I think that would almost create too many offshoots. Where it's yeah. like, there's, 
it's almost different platforms at that point. Yeah, I would wonder. Where, how do you how do you even cross collab like cross contact between that? Like if somebody's in like PG land, but then there's somebody that wants to comment from yeah Twitter mob land. Yeah, you know, but it's an innocent comment. Like, can they talk? Like, yeah, I have no idea. That I mean, that's above my pay grade of yeah, how they would too. make that work, but. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I, I would wonder if it would it make things more fragmented and would put people more into their own silos, or would it? Would you have this thing where eighty percent of people end up being on the same page, whereas now maybe it's only like fifty fifty? Yeah, in a way, I can almost see it making echo chambers worse because you're almost self-selecting yeah. which echo chamber you want to be in. But if you could see, if if it was an open platform where you could see everybody, like you're not prohibited to see anybody's, you know, prohibit anybody's accounts or spaces. Mm -hmm. But you can see what algorithm they're running on their feed, so you have context. I wonder if that's how yeah. it would work. Yeah, I think also you select more than one thing. You know, if you're just in the Twitter mob zone, you know, but there's news about something else that's important. You know, I don't think that the, the search page or the trending page should only show you like, whatever stuff about Trump, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, right? Mm. News about that. I think it should still show you like other related, non-related news actually. Yeah. You know, like it's not just one thing that you, you decide. It's maybe a, a few things that are selected like interests. Yeah. Here's the five interests that I have. Uh, Tyler Cowen, the economist, he wrote a short op-ed for the Washington post this past week about how AI is going to change the internet because there's been a lot of advances recently in a, f a few tools. One is called Dolly. Do you know what this is? No. So Dolly, I think Dolly and GPT-3, are, these are both two AI tools that were created by, I think, OpenAI, the company. And what, Do what Dolly is, is it's, it's, it's a AI that is trained on um, natural language and then, and then images. And I'm not an expert in this, so I, I may be messing this up. But the general gist of it is it's trained in natural language and, and images. So it's been fed, you know, billion, trillions of, of uh, probably more than that, um, images from across the internet, builds up this kind of like database of understanding what things look like. And then what you can do is, is there's basically just a text box and you can type in portrait of... Uh, portrait, portrait of Einstein dunking over LeBron James. Yeah. And what it will do is it'll literally generate that image. That image, which you could never, you couldn't just Google that. That doesn't, right. it doesn't exist. Yeah. But so it can create any image that uh -huh. you. So there's, there's accounts on Twitter you can find like do, weird Dolly images where it's just the craziest shit you ever, you ever you could ever think of. But it's really cool and it's really good. And then GPT three, GPT three, and this new tool called Lex actually. Um, these are. These are writing tools with AI. So what you do is you give them a prompt, and then it can generate based off reading, um, you know, trillions of pieces of content on the internet. A oat milk article. Yeah, an oat milk yeah. article, and yeah. just pull information. And it, it sounds right. And just based off a few words, you can have a very human-sounding article. The second you like read it, you start reading it, you realize that there's a real like lack of substance to it. It doesn't go deep. Yeah. But the point is, and people are. Putting it down, saying, "Oh, you know, this won't replace writers." This, but the point is, it's just the beginning of it, and you can only use a few words. You just say a few words. What Tyler Cowen was writing about is he's saying, 
this might be the first real competitor to Google for search because he was saying, you know, five, ten years from now, we may get to the point where you just speak to your computer what you want. So like Twitter, the experience of Twitter might just be, you know, show me what's happening in this part of the world today or update me on this piece of news. And it may, it may, have, it may have an opinion for you. Say like, hey, you really actually need to know about this today. And so it'll be this back and forth, but then you might have a day where it's just like, hey, throw, you know, bring some more randomness to my timeline and you'll see different inputs. Interesting. So I just thought, I thought that was a very interesting read. Yeah, and that is really interesting. So for you, you said that it would be, I guess, marginally better, potentially. Just you lean towards that it might become better. What kind of features would make Twitter better for you? Oh, um, I don't know. Um... What would make Twitter better for me? I don't know that I have an answer. Yeah, I don't. I I I don't know if I have a problem with Twitter. I will like maybe this just has to do with the people I follow, but it's I do like I do notice. Yeah, if you follow just like ten people within the same kind of bubble, your feed is just saturated with the same things over and over again. And maybe that's just my fault. I'm not getting finding more people to follow who have differing opinions and views on things. But maybe it's also part of Twitter's fault that they're not showing me more. Yeah. I think I usually am just like a, um, a very like passive user. I'm not like commenting on stuff mm-hmm. and I don't favorite or retweet much. So once I do favorite something, the algorithm is just like, everything needs to be this. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, the, the typical kind of sphere that we talk about, like, productivity yeah. and it's just it, it gets kind of old after a while um, yeah so yeah I'm not I'm not really sure um, I did like when it was just kind of more people that I actually know yeah. follow. like I feel like it's just more more times than not it's something that I don't actually follow right. that it's like fav- somebody favorited this mm-hmm. tweet instead of like you know out of the 50% of people that I follow that I actually know in person, like seeing what they're tweeting. Yeah. Um, and it can be good to have those random new people yeah, come across can. your timeline, but. Yeah. And also, I mean, I don't know if you can ever solve this, but I feel like the top comment on anything that gets popular, uh, that's like national level, is just like junk. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a thousand retweets and they're just making the story out to be something that's completely different. Or it's just like, look at how this exa- this is an example of like the politics I don't like on either side. Yeah. You know, they just turn it into something that's completely different where I try to not read the comments, but. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because Twitter is a great, it is a great place to get news because it's truly breaking news. Like you can get yeah. up to the second news on Twitter. Right. And usually stuff that no, you know, it it will take hours for an article article to come out about. But that also has its downsides because you can just quickly get, you know, inundated with information that's not accurate or tainted one way or the other. Because it's coming at you so fast. Yeah, there's not not that time to do diligence. No. Yeah, even the incentive, really. No. So I like to follow a lot of... If I get my news from anywhere, I try to follow mostly independent journalists yeah. and these, these types of people. I wouldn't call Robert Wright a journalist. He, I mean, he's an author, but he's just somebody who I just find his takes 
interesting on, actually I have his book up there. He, he's written a lot about religion and evolutionary psychology. So I, I, I just liked his writing, so I find his takes on current day issues interesting. I've always found that's a good way to filter news is find is authors that you like yeah. and follow them and see what their, their take on takes are. Because you kind of understand their position. You, you, you at least understand well their position on one thing, mm -hmm. something you've read. So at, from there, you can make some inferences about what else they'll be talking about and, and filtering through their feeds. So it's, it's a good way to filter your own feed, I think. Yeah, you already kind of have that like trust in them as an yeah. intellectual, potentially. Right. Right. Yeah. Whether they're limited on like their geopolitical stance is another thing, but at least like you know more times than not, like it might be an informative take for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Speaking of books, I said this week I have not been reading as much lately. Yeah. What have you been reading? It. You've been reading. <laughs> I've been reading a textbook. Which yeah. Is pretty. Right. Pretty dry, but it's actually kind of interesting. It's a like a sports science textbook, so it's kind of just like a bite-sized amount of information in all of the domains of sports science. So, nutrition, strength conditioning, technology, data, um, like some neuroscience in there, psychology in there. It's really everything. So it's been it's how been, long is it? It's like six hundred pages. Oh, I'd be interested in that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's honestly at the level where, you know, you could just dive into it and not have a crazy background. I right. think there's some, there's some technical knowledge, but they do a good job kind of defining it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like we talked about in other podcasts, like just reading the textbook or reading a textbook is just such a good way to get a lot of information that's been distilled down from studies especially if it's like this one is actually for a certification in sports science oh cool um so you know like they're they're doing their due diligence to make sure that it's right. good information that's well cited and they want the practitioners to actually be applying um you know it's not just like something that has one study right they they talk about the limitations of everything that's included there oh so, yeah, that's good it's pretty good yeah yeah maybe i should do that soon pick something I'm interested in and grab a textbook on it and yeah. read. I like those, yeah, those approaches, that all-encompassing approach. Yeah, I mean, approach. something like that, it's like if you pick up a textbook like that, you're going to have a little bit of knowledge on anything that somebody in the field would right. be using day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like just kind of a peek behind the curtain of like, okay, what are the different jumping-off points that somebody in sports science would even like mm -hmm. be educated in, right. right? And so each chapter could be a whole specialty for somebody, and there's like 30 chapters, yeah, right? Um, but yeah, it's been pretty interesting. Are there, is there anything from that book that you're gonna go deeper on? Um, I think a lot of the like wearable technology, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's some good stuff to be had there. And actually, I think something that could be interesting for the listeners is the distinction between like internal load versus external load. And this was something that I think I've learned about previously, but just having the distinction and a little bit more of an explanation was helpful. But 
So when we're talking about load, right, it's the amount of stress that's placed on your body. And so an internal load would be things like heart rate or oxygen consumption. Oh, interesting. I wouldn't right? have known that. Yeah. And then external load could be something like miles run or weight lifted, total volume. Um, and so a lot of times we, we use external load as a proxy for internal load, although they're not like perfectly correlated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a far better runner than I am. So if we go on a run together and we run five miles, like we have the same external load, but we're going to have far different internal loads. Right. 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 And then also, I think we all inherently know this, but like if I run, you know, five miles now at the beginning of my running journey, that's a lot different than six months from now when I run the same amount right? Because I'm, I'm adapting to the exercise. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's changing there is not the external load. It's the, the internal load, right? Like it's the perceived exertion or the amount of exertion internally is far different just because you're having those adaptations to exercise, like more mitochondria and, um, you're gonna have a lower heart rate at that same intensity. Um, yeah. Capillary density is one capillary. more important than the other. Not necessarily, like a good sports science program, like let's say you're working with a, a soccer team, you'd want to have a measure of external and internal load because mm -hmm. you'd want to know how, like if you just had internal load, it's like, okay, this practice made our athletes average 156 beats per minute for 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like what did we do in practice that caused that? Right. So you need the external load to say, all right, well, we spent this much time just total on our feet. We spent this much time sprinting, you know, our work to rest ratio was this. So we, on average, we spent 20 seconds of effort and then 10 seconds resting, right? Um, we had this many sprints, this many uh, jogs, whatever, the amount of distance we covered, uh, all those things are important. So then you can start to find trends and like, okay, when we have higher, whatever, distance days um, or distance per minute, we have a higher overall speed, we have a higher heart rate. Okay, that makes sense. You know, you start to see those trends, then you can start to program better practices or training sessions. Does this concept apply to rest too? Do you look at in terms of, the only reason I'm asking is because I listened to Rich Roll, who's an ultra, ultra athlete, uh, he had, he's got a podcast and he had this guy Gordo Byrne on this week Okay. and he's also an ultra, ultra man, does Ironman triathlons. And he was saying how the field has switched from being when he was in his late twenties and early thirties training, being all about seven days a week, grinding the guy who was taking the day off. Everybody looked at him like, we're going to get ahead of him this week mm -hmm. for sure. To now, the field really prioritizes the, the, I guess, state of the art training is five days of intense work, two days of total rest. Yeah. So they're really tapping into rest and rest being a big differentiator in who succeeds in that sport and who doesn't and really optimizing for rest. So I'm just curious if, if rest gets looked at with the same rigor that activity does. Yeah, I think... So working with athletes, I think to them, they don't have the same amount of, 
they don't place the same amount of stress on rest oftentimes. I think at the elite levels, you see a lot of like superstars now really investing in rest and recovery. But I would say practitioners now have a, a very good understanding of the importance of rest because inherently when we're talking about fitness and increasing fitness over time, there's the two ends of the spectrum are fitness and fatigue, right? If you have high fatigue, you're not going to be increasing your fitness mm -hmm. until you rest, right? Right. So the difference between that, those two is like your readiness. So like how fresh you are. Yeah. So like if you have a high amount of accumulating fatigue, right, you're not going to be increasing your fitness until you're able to um, have a recovery period where you're actually adapting to the exercise. Because when you're actually exercising, that's just placing a stress on your body as a signal of like, hey, we need to increase from the level that we're currently at if we're going to tolerate this stress better, mm -hmm. right? You can't work out seven days a week with high intensity and just yeah. get better. That, the rest is crucial. Right. Yeah. This guy was talking about something where, something about, I don't know if you know anything about this, uh, your morning heart rate being pretty, really determining yeah. whether you're actually ready for training that day or not. Yeah. So morning heart rate, and then also people do HRV as yeah, well. Yeah, you're talking about HRV. Um, and so what that is, obviously the, not obviously, but the autom autonomic nervous system has two branches. So there's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And I forget what the, um, the term is, but the typical heart rate that your body would actually have is around 100 to 110 beats per minute, I believe. Um, resting? Resting. But if you have higher parasympathetic tone, so the parasympathetic is the rest and digest part of the nervous system. The sympathetic is the more alert, uh, people say fight or flight mm -hmm. part of the nervous system. So typically you'd be at 110, but if you have higher parasympathetic tone, you have a stronger parasympathetic component of your nervous system, you'll have a lower heart rate. Oh, interesting. I had right. no idea that it would just sit at 100 to 110. Yeah, so that's like, it's like a tug of war. So like the parasympathetic top side is like pulling you lower. So typically if you have higher aerobic fitness or even um, people that do a lot of breath work, like a lot mm -hmm. of meditation and yoga, um, they're on that parasympathetic side of the tug of war, pulling it down to a lower resting heart rate. Right. But when you're placing a lot of load on your body and you're having a ton of stress, that's more sympathetic. If you're not recovering well to the stress, so that's going to pull you more in the direction of that 110 range. I see. And then you'll see trends where the resting heart rate is, is more elevated over time. I see. So if you trained for five days straight and then you were thinking about training on, say, Saturday, but you woke up and your resting heart rate is, I don't know, 15 beats per minute over what it normally is, mm -hmm. that would be indicative of you should probably rest today instead of training. Your body's not, your body's not getting down to... It's not acclimated yet. Right. And so I guess the answer is really, it depends. So potentially, but if you're in a part of your training phase where you're trying to really stress the body before taking some time off to really, because to backtrack, the biggest thing is progressive overload. Over time, you have to place more load on the body than it can handle in order to keep progressing. 
So at some point you're going to have to have that elevated heart rate response, be potentially sore and not completely recovered from your training to push the envelope and create adaptation. Uh, okay. Right? So if you had a, if you're a marathon runner and you woke up with that, you know, 15 point higher uh, heart rate the day before a race, like that could indicate that you're in trouble, right? Mm. That could say that you're not intelligently thinking about your training program. Because like I said, you have the opposite ends of the spectrum between fitness and fatigue. So if you have high fitness or high fatigue, if you have high fatigue, um, then your readiness probably isn't good. You're probably not very fresh for mm -hmm. the race. Um, and if you think about like powerlifting, are you familiar with how they kind of train? Mm, vaguely. Okay. So they'll keep pushing towards higher and higher weights for lower amounts of mm -hmm. sets yeah. and reps. So the week of an actual powerlifting meet, you might only do um, one workout with like 10 total reps, but it's just like max weight. But the rest of it is just rest. Yeah, so that's yeah. the concept of like peaking for a competition. Oh, okay. You're eliminating all of that fatigue and just resting so that your body can Interesting. be fully ready for the race. Yeah. So it really depends on the time of year, like, you know, and it, it depends on how you want to do your programming. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, it's like the concept of a deload week. You heard of like a deload week? Sort of. Yeah. Not really. Like if I'm doing four straight weeks of a hard workout and then I have a deload week, you know, I'm just doing like lower amounts of oh, okay. sets or reps or right. intensity. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And I think this is something that people... I mean, it's just one of the reasons why you need to intelligently program your exercise and have some degree of understanding if you want to get, you know, to a to another level. Right. Yeah, I've never taken. I've I've always taken my exercise seriously, but never in the way that I think you do. Which yeah, I feel like you have more of a plan with your workouts, and I just I just Sometimes. do whatever I feel like. Yeah, I just yeah. do whatever I feel like doing that day. I obviously yeah. consulted you on some workout stuff, which has been beneficial for me, but yeah, I mean, I lift weights and I run and that, that's it. Yeah. Maybe at some point, maybe as I get a little bit older, I'll go at it a little bit more deliberately and with more of a strategy. For now, I just do it to feel good. Yeah. And I think I have enough base knowledge in it to... Definitely. To kind of make up my routine on the fly, I guess. But I do see the value like in what you're saying, going about it more intelligently. I think that's, that's something I'm, I have an eye on doing. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of times you can reach a pretty good point without, you know, we're talking about like getting to elite levels. Like you, yeah, can be, right. you can be in really good shape without completely planning your workouts as long as there is intensity um, and then increasing uh, volume over time or you know distance over time whatever it is progressively but i think actually people kind of have a much better intuitive sense of their body too where you can kind of stumble on the right decision right, right. like we're using heart rate and hrv and all these expensive gadgets to tell us these things but a lot of people inherently know like all right 
today at the gym, I just don't feel like as into it, mm -hmm. right? So they don't go as hard. And right. then like, they end up recovering from all of the fatigue that's accumulated. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that you're doing that to a degree. It's, yeah, not, it's just not like as completely like deliberate, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So we're coming up on an hour here. This will be the longest podcast we've ever done Is because it? we finally ditched Zoom. And yeah. The 40 minute limit was yeah. destroying us. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Should we try to see if maybe there's anything as we wrap up here? actionable that people can hmm. can take away from what we talked about today yeah. i wonder if that'd be a fun thing to do to wrap up maybe experiment with i mean okay I, I think i have something just continuing on the the exercise standpoint i feel like the principles that at least helped me and i was an exercise science major um for undergrad but Two of the things that you just need to think about when we're talking about exercise is there's the said principle, which is specific adaptation to imposed demands. And then also there's progressive overload, which I've already kind of talked about. But um, I feel like the said principle really just simplifies things a lot. So said principle, specific adaptation to imposed demands, as I said. It's essentially that your body will acclimate to the stressors that, is, that are placed on it. So one of the examples that I see a lot is there will be middle schoolers at my gym that they'll do one rep max bench press, right? And then, you know, because I go at the same time pretty frequently, um, I'll see them like week after week. And I'm like, these kids continue to try to do one rep maxes on bench. But then after they do that, they'll do three sets of 10, mm -hmm. right? They want to get their one rep max bench up, but they're doing three sets of 10, right? So that's not, you're not placing demands on the body that will create an adaptation for max strength. I see. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's three sets of 10, that's more in a, a quote, hypertrophy range. He'd be better off doing four sets of five or like five sets of three, lower reps with higher weight right. because you're placing more demands on the body. Right. Right. So if you want to, it's, it's really just simplifies things a lot. It's like you want to get faster and sprint faster. We should sprint. Yeah. Fast. Yeah. As fast as you can. Yeah. It's that simple. If you want to get strong, lift heavy weights. If you want to be able to run a really long distance, run a really long distance. <laughs> it sounds really simple, but it's no, the way people think about these things. It's like they really overcomplicate. No, it is, and it's true for so many things in life. Is the answer is to, to you know, do the thing that you want. Just to do to. the thing that you want to do. Exactly. It, it, and what people stumble on with that is is there's just the initial inertia that you have to overcome in one direction. That is is uh, kind of anti inertia of just mm -hmm. not moving. Yeah. And then you just have to start moving and that's uncomfortable. And it's also uncomfortably bad. It's some, same thing with anybody who, you know, wants to write more. Just, you, you have, then you have, just have to sit down and commit to, you know, write for 30 minutes during the day. And exactly. who cares what comes out? We took the same approach with this podcast, I think. And we've tried to do this before and failed doing it. And yeah. now this is the most we've ever done of this. And I think it's because we've just been willing to 
just do, do the podcast. Yeah, just do, do a podcast. Yeah. Do it even if it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you'll you'll get better over time. Yeah. So yeah. we don't need to read ten books on how to podcast. It's just like okay, the adaptation we want is better podcasting. So the demands that we place are just more podcast time. Yeah. 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 And obviously, I mean, there's intelligent ways to do things, and there's yeah, you know right. reflection and going about it with a certain strategy, but people can get so caught up in mapping all that out beforehand yeah, when exactly. it's the answer is to just just start doing the thing, yeah. which I guess can be the other actionable takeaway from this episode is just start doing the thing, whatever it is, whether it's working out or, um, you know, even eating healthier, mm-hmm. just get more healthy foods into your house. Exactly. Yeah, and I think... In terms of creating more like um, intelligent plan after a certain period of time, I feel like that almost ties into the second point, which is the progressive overload. Mm-hmm. Like, eventually, you need to start to get better. You need to place a little bit more demand on whatever you're doing incrementally. So I think people inherently know this as well. But um, yeah, just increasing five pounds every week, um, whatever five ten pounds, increasing another rep each week, increasing the amount of sets that you're doing, increasing the miles a little bit, whatever it is, just, uh, it doesn't have to be a lot, right? It could even just be like 5% increases over time. Uh, they end up going a long way. I think that a lot of people get into fitness and they just, all right, today I'm running a mile today. I'm running two. And then in a week I'm going to be running 10. It's mm-hmm. like the progression is just way too fast and your yeah. body just, it cannot adapt that fast. So yeah. You need a lot less than you think, but it's still very important. Like I know a lot of people that will go to the get the the gym and um, lift the same weight day in and day out, do the same exercises. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. I think on that note, probably wrap this up. Sweet. Yeah. All right. So this was episode five. Episode four just came out. Um, so this will be out, you know, shortly. Hopefully within the next six to seven days. Yeah, all our fans are waiting. Yeah, all our... We know we have some of you. Some yeah. of you exist. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. I'm looking at the stats. I don't know who you are, but... Yeah, you saw you saw a listen from the Dominican Republic, and you're like, wow, we have some, yeah. a fan of the DR, and it's just me on yeah, vacation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but on YouTube, I know we have people that yeah. we don't know. So, share this, let us know what you think. And, yeah, if there's any... Topics to cover, comments, we're on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, Anchor, which I don't know anybody who actually uses Anchor to listen to podcasts. We should be on Overcast, which is actually a really good podcast service, because they're owned by Apple, so we should be on there. And that's all I can think of. And Spotify, if I said that. YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. All right. Cool. Sweet. Do this next week. All right. See ya. All right.